Welcome to this week's energy show. Now, clean energy has come a long way since the first windmill and satellite solar cells. And those of us in the clean energy industry, we must overcome not only changes in technology and economics for clean energy systems, but also direct misinformation from incumbent energy providers, some of which have a kernel of truth. Now, this week's energy show will discuss 10 clean energy myths, as well as fossil fuel shamans that continue to promote these false myths. Now, here they are in really no particular order, the 10 myths. Number one, solar panels take more energy to make than they generate. Now, producing solar panels does take energy. You've got to refine silicon, you've got to smelt aluminum, you've got to extrude the aluminum, machine it, melt glass, ship the solar panels, recycle. There's a lot of energy that goes into the process. But the solar panels themselves produce much more energy during their 25-year life than it takes to create them. Now, studies have been done by established research labs showing that the energy payback of solar panels is in the range of six months to three years. Kind of depends on where they're made and the type of solar panels. And they define this energy payback by the total energy input for making a solar panel divided by the total energy output over the life of the panel. So obviously, if it uses a lot more energy than it generates, it's got a, a negative payback, but these things got really, really good paybacks now. All right, so this energy payback is somewhat dependent on the location in which the panels are used. I mean, if you use the solar panels in a place that doesn't get a lot of sun, they're not going to get as much energy output as opposed to using them in a desert where you're going to get lots and lots of sun. So faster paybacks, faster energy paybacks in sunny locations. And here's the other thing. It's kind of a subtlety, but you also get a faster energy payback depending on where the panels are manufactured because many locations have inexpensive energy costs. Now, you may wonder why silicon is usually produced and refined in places where there's a lot of hydroelectricity. And same thing with smelting aluminum. That's because these processes use electric furnaces and they use a lot of power so if you manufacture the panels in a place where there's cheap electricity you're going to have a faster energy payback now the other thing that's happening was the continued declines in solar panel costs and the increases in gasoline and methane costs the energy paybacks for these systems get better and better and better and these shamans these fossil fuel shamans that are promoting the myth that solar panels take more energy to create than they generate they're easy to ignore it's flat out wrong Okay, myth number two. Electric vehicles or EVs are more expensive than gas vehicles. Well, yes, there's some truth in this. And it used to be clearly true when lithium-ion batteries were new, 20 years ago when we just started making EVs 15 years ago. So when lithium-ion batteries were hard to get, really expensive, and EV manufacturing was very limited, when gasoline was $2 a gallon, EVs were indeed more expensive over the life of the vehicle than gas vehicles. But now the lifetime costs of most EVs is clearly less than a gas-powered car. And here's why. First, the upfront costs of EVs are higher because the cost of the big battery for the car is still very expensive. Now, that cost of the battery is coming down but there's so much demand for EVs, it's not coming down as fast as it was. Now, by the way, although the battery of an EV is more expensive, pretty much everything else in the car is cheaper because you have many fewer moving parts. I mean, there's no alternator, there's no gas engine, there's no water pump, there's no belts moving around, there's no fan. All this stuff kind of goes away. So 
the EVs still are a little bit more expensive than gas cars. A combination of shortage of batteries, of availability of EVs, and just the batteries are expensive. Now, to offset these high costs, there are tax credits, both in federal and state. So even for cars that no longer qualify the tax credits, I think like Tesla no longer qualifies for tax credits, but certainly even for Teslas where you don't get a tax credit, the operating cost of EVs is dramatically lower. Now, first, the biggest cost of operating a gas car is the gas, right? So there is no gas expense. Now, you have to charge it up with electricity, but the electricity is, in terms of value per propulsion, it's cheaper. With an EV, when you look at the price of electricity, it kind of varies where you're located, how much the utility charges for electricity, but you can pay about six cents a mile, kind of going through the numbers, six cents a mile to drive an EV if you charge at home. Usually home electricity rates are cheaper. Now, you can compare that to 15 cents a mile for a gas car. Now, the second is the maintenance costs for EVs are much lower. I've been driving EVs for almost 10 years now. The only thing I've ever had to do, in addition to plug them in, is replace the tires and the wipers. I never had to add coolant. I never had to do an oil change. I didn't need any brake work. Now, sometimes I go fast and stop a lot. No broken belts, no tune-ups. And if you charge your EV with your own rooftop solar system, where you're going to be paying about five cents a kilowatt hour for your electricity instead of, say, you know, 40 cents or 30 cents from the utility or $5 a gallon for gas in places it's even higher, your per mile costs with a solar powered EV are about three cents a mile. That's five times less than a comparable gas car. It's funny, I was just talking to a friend and he was comparing the cost of his EV with his gas car. And it's just like no comparison. Okay, myth number three, utility solar power is cheaper than rooftop solar power. Well, this one, this myth is flat out misleading. Yes, the utilities pay less than two cents a kilowatt hour to generate the power that they get from these huge solar farms in the desert with tens of thousands of solar panels on used land. So they're generating that power for two cents a kilowatt hour at the power plant. And you compare that to rooftop solar system with 20 or 30 solar panels, which when you look at it on a life cycle cost, it's going to be an amortized cost of somewhere around like six or seven cents a kilowatt hour. So from a pure generation standpoint, yes, the utilities can generate solar electricity at their huge distant utility owned solar farms a lot cheaper than on your home. But on the other hand, you've got to look at the details here, the reality. Utilities charge over 25 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity. Heck, in my house, it's 50 cents sometimes. So even though they're paying two cents a kilowatt hour to generate that electricity in a power plant 1,000 miles away, 500 miles away, they're charging me 50 cents. And the reason is the utilities have a huge markup. They've got to make a profit for their investors. They have to pay these huge transmission charges for that long-distance transmission of electricity. Somebody's got to pay to build those transmission lines. By the way, PG&E is now burying 10,000 miles of solar power of wires, 10,000 miles of transmission lines at about $4 million a mile. So that's kind of run the numbers, $40 billion. That's why it's so expensive. So that cheap power that's being generated in the desert or distant places costs a lot of money by the time it gets to you. And they have to pay for their buildings, their equipment, their trucks, and their salaries. So they mark that two cent electricity up to over 50 cents when they're selling it to you. So you... Mr. or Ms. Average Consumer can generate electricity on your rooftop for less than one-eighth 
of what your local utility will charge you for that electricity. That's why it makes so much sense to put solar, even if you finance it, it makes total sense. Okay. Myth number four, clean energy is a job killer. Well, yeah, there's a little bit of truth to this myth, but the reality is in, in practice different um, because really throughout all technology transitions, new technology jobs are created and old technology jobs become obsolete. Now, we've gone from wood fireplaces to heater homes to coal boilers to natural gas turbines to nuclear power plants. All of these technologies, in one way or the other, are on the decline with diminishing numbers of jobs. Not a lot of coal miners anymore. First, we're not using as much coal. Second, they used to dig the coal out by hand, and now it's completely automated. They just rip the top of a mountain and, and scoop it out, but we're not using the coal. Natural gas, nuclear power plants, we're replacing those with combined solar power plants with batteries. So all these technologies are on the decline. And on the other hand, there are millions of clean energy jobs now throughout our economy because we're migrating to clean energy jobs because solar and wind energy are cheaper than fossil fuels. And when you combine them with batteries, you've got the reliability of power that you need. So Employment in the fossil fuel industry will inevitably decline, just like employment in the coal industry declined, just like employment in the nuclear industry declined when there was less demand for that technology. And employment in clean energy jobs for putting in solar farms or wind turbines or maintaining those systems or new battery plants, that's just going to go through the roof. Okay, myth number five. Heat pumps don't work in cold climates. Well, it used to be true. It's once again, it's one of those situations where technology has improved and the myth is no longer a myth. So early air-to-air heat pump systems did not work very well at temperatures much below freeze. And I remember I installed some of my first ground couple heat pump systems 40 years ago up in Massachusetts. And yeah, when the temperature was down below freezing, we had to heat the house with electric heat. But that was 40 years ago. Now there's new technology for compressors and more efficient heat pumps. They work very well in cold climates. Now, kind of looking at the data from these new systems, only in very cold climates, when the temperature is often below zero Fahrenheit, backup heat sources may be necessary. But throughout almost all the U.S., new heat pumps can adequately heat, and then you get the other bonus of that they're cooling too, almost every building. So why do you want to put in a separate furnace and a separate air conditioner? You just got one unit that does both. I've never had a problem keeping my house and our commercial offices toasty warm here in Silicon Valley, even on the coldest winter day. And those heat pumps on the roof at my home or in the office and the ones on the side of my house at home, they automatically transition into air conditioning mode on hot days. Like, heck, it's at 90 degrees today. The buildings are, are nice and cool. Okay. Myth number six, hydrogen is the clean fuel of the future. Well, it all depends on economics, and it all depends on whether or not you really like the fossil fuel infrastructure. But right now, 99.9% of our hydrogen that we're using in the U.S. is produced for natural gas. And guess where 99% of that hydrogen is going? It's going into refining crude oil into gasoline and other byproducts. So we're adding hydrogen to this crude oil and that hydrogen is actually coming from natural gas. The process that we use to create hydrogen out of natural gas is called steam reformation. We heat the natural gas with steam. It emits a lot of CO2 and then you're also able to get hydrogen out of it. Now they call that hydrogen from steam reformation brown hydrogen because it's very polluting. Now, and when you kind of look at the complete cycle, 
it's more efficient, it's cheaper, and there's fewer emissions if we just burn the natural gas directly for propulsion instead of creating hydrogen for vehicles you emit the same amount of CO2, but then when you create that hydrogen for vehicles, you've got to transport it, you've got to pipe it, you need a whole new infrastructure for it. And that infrastructure requires a lot of energy. So what we're moving towards and what I'm very enthusiastic about is making clean hydrogen, also known as green hydrogen. And that can be produced by taking water and you electrolyze it. It's something you do in your introductory chemistry class. You, you run electricity through the water and the bubbles come up and you get oxygen and you get hydrogen, which it's a process that uses electricity, but you've got clean, perfectly clean electricity from solar and wind and you're getting hydrogen directly out of the water. But here's the dilemma for using hydrogen as a fuel, even if it's clean green hydrogen as a fuel. If you create clean hydrogen using renewable energy, it's actually much cheaper to use that electricity, that renewable energy electricity, and more efficient just to put that energy into a battery and then power the vehicle directly with a battery instead of creating the hydrogen, you know, it might be 50% efficient, and then transporting it to the vehicle and using it into vehicle. So you got to look at the whole cycle costs, but just simply electrolyzing the hydrogen, transporting the hydrogen, and then burning the hydrogen or in combusting in a fuel cell process, it actually is not that efficient. You're better off just, heck, using a battery. And you, you kind of drill down into the guts of a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, and it's basically an electric vehicle. They, they have batteries in them, too. This has a hydrogen tank and a fuel cell. So you get rid of the hydrogen tank, get rid of the fuel cell, put a bigger battery in. We're all doing that. It's great. Now, the real potential for clean hydrogen is really there's just two big opportunities, and they're huge. One is as a feedstock for industrial processes, such as cement and steel. And making cement, making steel burn a tremendous amount of fuel, either electricity or gas. And you can do that with hydrogen and have the same effect. The second big market is for long-distance transportation. Planes, trucks, big trucks, trains, where actually having a tank of hydrogen is very high energy density, and it's kind of pretty quick to refill. Whereas you could kind of accomplish the same thing with batteries, but boy, by the time you load a plane up with a lot of batteries, you're not going to be able to carry a lot of cargo or people. So the weight of the batteries becomes prohibitive for certain long-distance types of transportation. So as far as a fuel or an energy storage source, batteries are by far and way better for the vast majority of vehicles. All right, myth number seven. We need new nuclear reactors to generate baseload power. Now, baseload power is the power that you get at night. It's just kind of always there, 24-7, boom. The power plants just keep cranking along. Now, candidly, I'm conflicted on this one. I used to be a 100% no-nukes person, but now I'm looking at the demand that we have for this evening and nighttime power, and I'm thinking that it might make sense to keep some of the existing nuclear plants running. Now... But the dilemma with this whole myth is the last few nuclear power plants that were constructed in the U.S. or attempted to be constructed after they pulled the plug, these plants have taken over 20 years to build from start to finish and over $20 billion. Most of them have been canceled and the utilities have to, you know, $10 billion of canceled power plant charges. Guess what? The ratepayers pay for it. So they pay for a power plant that the utilities wanted that you never got any electricity out of and now they're using wind, solar, and batteries. So the problem with new nuclear plants is we can't wait 20 years for more nuclear plants. We just can't wait. And you look at how much it's going to cost to build a plant and how many 
batteries you can buy for $20 billion, you might as well just put a stack of batteries in a field. You're not going to have the issue. Charge those batteries up with wind and solar, and you're going to pretty much have something that's pretty close to the operation of a nuclear power plant. Not to mention the facts that operating a nuclear power plant very expensive. So it's not true that operating a nuclear power plant is free. It's very expensive. And then you have to decommission it at the end of its life. And decommissioning costs for nuclear power plants are counted in the billions of dollars. So it's not like just you know, if you've got an old solar power plant, it's taken up 10 acres of space and you've got a bunch of solar panels that you have to recycle. You know, we're not talking about billions of dollars there. But with nuclear power plants, we are. But the thing is, as I mentioned, we have an immediate problem and one that existing nuclear plants can solve. So I'm in favor of extending the life of existing nuclear plants until we have enough wind, solar, and storage. Myth number eight, fossil fuels are okay since we will use carbon capture and sequestration to remove the CO2. So carbon capture and sequestration, we call it CCS because it's hard to pronounce. But here's the thing, repeat after me. There is no such thing as clean and cheap energy from fossil fuels. There is no such thing as clean and cheap energy from fossil fuels. Pick one. You can either have clean and expensive fossil fuel energy or cheap and dirty fossil fuel energy. The reason is the cost of carbon capture and sequestration is very high, making clean fossil fuels expensive. You've got to add in the cost of taking the CO2 out and filtering out the other bad stuff. The problem's not technology. I mean, there is technology that can kind of sort of make this work, ends up being expensive. The problem is the laws of thermodynamics. And keep in mind, we get energy from breaking the carbon and hydrogen bonds in hydrocarbon fossil fuels. That's it. We break the bonds, we burn it, we create energy, we get CO2 out of it. But it takes more energy than is originally released to kind of completely recapture that airborne CO2 and then sequester that carbon. It's just thermodynamics. So I'm not aware of a single CCS plant that's working on even a pilot basis economically. So they can't even get a little one working economically. Why? Because it takes so much equipment and operating costs and people and electricity to run these plants just to take the CO2 out. You would have been better off just using that electricity directly in an electric vehicle or heat pumps or something like that. Okay. And the thing is, sometimes they're not permanently eliminating that CO2. They're injecting the CO2 as a gas in deep wells underground. And that works sometimes okay if you're in an oil field and you've got a lot of wells where there was some pipes that are going deep underground and you can pump it, but you know, that's only in certain parts of the country. It's not going to work all over the place. So the other thing that I worry about is I don't trust the companies that are re-injecting CO2 into old oil and gas wells because the fossil fuel industry can't even capture the methane from these existing wells. And you know, call me paranoid and skeptical, but I don't see why these CO2 injection wells will, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, little earthquake, whatever, they're going to burp up the CO2 in the future. They got the gas out. They're putting the CO2 back in. I think it's going to just come out again. But still, it doesn't matter. No matter how you do it, it's more expensive. Now, of course, the fossil fuel industry has a different claim. They claim that someday we're going to find a way to ramp up carbon capture and sequestration, CCS, so that it's cost-effective. And this hope 
is there reason to keep burning fossil fuels? There's billions and billions of dollars all around the world going into this technology so that the fossil fuel industry can say, we don't have to stop burning fossil fuels because we're going to solve the problem someday. Well, they're not. Shame on the scientists and engineers who conveniently ignore the thermodynamics and economics of CCS so that they can keep burning fossil fuels and polluting our earth. Okay, myth number nine. You should super insulate your house and install new windows before installing solar. Well, that's old conventional wisdom when solar panels were really, really expensive. But because of new solar technology, new solar panels, and especially the economies of scale of solar installations, solar is pretty cheap now. And installing new windows and wall insulation is very expensive. In fact, if you were to go to a local contractor and say, hey, I want to put new windows on my house and I want to insulate my walls, that's going to cost you more than putting in a big solar system on your roof. I mean, just way more. And I've run these comparative numbers all over the country using software from the Department of Energy. And what I found by using the DOE's own software and using current costs for energy, solar panels, and wall and window insulation, adding a few more solar panels to make up for poor wall insulation or single-pane windows, it's always more cost-effective to add the solar panels except in very old, leaky homes in very cold climates. I kind of went through this with my house in San Jose. I said, well, I'm going to re-insulate the walls. Well, there was a little bit of insulation in there. It was put in 50 years ago. It's not working too great. I could super insulate those walls. It cost me like $15,000, $20,000 to do that. I got to drill holes throughout the house, and I got to patch everything. And way cheaper just to put another four solar panels on the roof, and I've made up for all the energy that would leak out. In other words... Here in California, it makes more sense to generate more energy from rooftop solar than to spend extra money to super insulate your home. Okay, myth number 10. Rooftop solar is too expensive. Okay, well, I'm kind of wrapping up with one of my pet peeves. Without a doubt, rooftop solar is the cheapest way to generate electricity for your home or business. Yes, 30 years ago, it was too expensive. 20 years ago, we started to cross the line. 10 years ago, even without big incentives, solar was cheaper than conventional electricity. The fully amortized costs for solar, when I say fully amortized, that's you look at the installation cost, take out the tax credit, and you say, all right, what is it going to cost me for 25 years, including some maintenance involved? Maybe you have to replace an inverter after 12 years or so. Fully amortized costs for solar in the U.S. are in the range of 5 to 10 cents per kilowatt hour. I'm not aware of any single utility in the entire U.S. that has electric rates lower than 10 cents a kilowatt hour. Now, granted, as we discussed in the first myth, utilities generate solar power for only a few pennies, but by the time they transmit that electricity over long distance and sell it to you, their selling price of electricity is 10 or 20 times their cost. Yes, the upfront costs of solar are expensive, just like the upfront costs of a car. But just like a car and other big purchases, it's easy to finance rooftop solar. Now, unlike a car, if you finance solar, you're going to see a positive cash flow situation. In other words, you're going to be taking a $300 a month electric bill and bringing that down to zero by paying maybe $200 for the financing. And one of the reasons is there's low interest rate credit unions at 2.5% that are available, as well as dedicated solar loans cost a little bit more than these credit unions, but they're available. So if you have a house in California, I just looked at a recent installation we're doing, $380 a month electric bill, and bringing that down to zero with an 8-kilowatt system, if we finance that system, the financing costs are about $250 a month for 12 years with a 25 
5% loan. That gives the customer, that gives you, if you were going to do this, $130 a month positive cash flow. That's money in your bank. That's $1,500 a year. That makes solar a great investment and certainly cheaper than paying electric bills forever. And as you know, we talked about your electricity costs are going to be going up at 10% a year. So that positive cash flow is going to save you even more money as electric rates continue to increase. Okay, to wrap up, there's a lot of misconceptions about clean energy. Clean energy used to be expensive, but steady improvements in technology and reductions in costs because of widespread deployment of these systems, now clean energy is clearly cheaper. Almost all the pushback and criticism when you track it down of clean energy comes from the fossil fuel industry and their supporters. The best way for you to reduce your personal energy costs is to generate your own rooftop solar power. Okay, that's all the time we have on this week's energy show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts.